Hey friends, I hope you're all staying as safe and healthy and comfortable as possible, and that you're taking care of all the people and pets and plants that are important to you. You are listening to the People Are the Enemy podcast. I'm the host of the show. My name is Andy Mascola. Hello! Once a week since January 1st, 2018, we've made at least one new episode of the show available to you. Every one of those episodes are ad-free. There are no advertisers, and there's no Patreon for People Are the Enemy. The only thing I've ever asked of listeners is if you love the show and if you'd like to help support it and myself monetarily and get yourself or the reader in your life some fine fiction, please consider purchasing any or all of my books. I'm the author of 10 novels that are all currently available worldwide in both paperback and ebook formats via Amazon. If you don't use Amazon, fear not. All 10 of my titles are available in ebook format at Google Play. Just search my last name, M-A-S-C-O-L-A. That's how you'll find me on Google Play. If you've already purchased any or all of my books, thank you, thank you, thank you. I sincerely appreciate your generous patronage. And with all that out of the way, here's the quirky theme song. People Are the Enemy listeners. This is episode 279 of the People Are the Enemy podcast. Thank you so much for checking it out. You're in the right place. You're about to hear the voice of a man sitting just inches from me in the studio. Holy sh... Oh, I almost, almost dropped the S-bomb. Hear that guy? He's here. We're going to talk to him in just a moment. Are you psyched? Get ready. Listen to that fade out, huh? That's how you do it, folks. Folks, our in-studio guest today is the musician, writer, and self-described charlatan, Joshua Allen Tate, a.k.a. Josh Tate, a.k.a. Jota the manager, composer, singer, and guitarist for Helitosis, the most distasteable band in the world. In 2021, Josh, along with his bandmates, recorded and released the full-length Helitosis album, Seshing the Trenchmouth. Published in conjunction with the record was Josh's first book, a horror novella titled Literally Horrible, a companion piece to Seshing the Trenchmouth, described as, quote, a disgusting romp alongside a serial killer and their insane quest for a self-fulfilling prophecy. A mid-90s era look at the desperate differences that thrust some people into the fringe of society and the edge of humanity. End quote. And with all that, I'm going to move some stuff because, well, I mean, it's a very spacious studio and it's at the top of a of a, you know, a, a, a wonderfully beautiful building in, in downtown uh, Super City, wherever. Metropolis. <laughs> but uh, but, I, but I'm going to, I'm gonna uh, out of courtesy here, make some room for, for a guest. And I'm going to move this a little bit closer. You want to move in with me here? Sure. Josh? I don't mean literally move in, not like bring your stuff and like, you know, 
Oh, well, that's awkward because <laughs> I packed the car on the way here. Oh, man. No, no. This is, this is Josh Tate. We have Josh Tate here. Thank you for being here, buddy. It's oh, good to see you. Thanks for having me. This is awesome. I was uh, telling Josh before he showed up that it was a lot like the uh, King's Coronation in England, where it was like there was a lot of preparation to have somebody in the studio today. You know, the the grounds work had to be done. Mm. You know, you had to you know had to you know the 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 windows had to be cleaned of this uh, of this skyscraper that we're uh, sitting at the top of, and people are the enemy tower. Mm. Harness the peacocks. <laughs> yeah. Put the tigers away. And I had this thought. No, honestly, if, you know, very simple operation here. I, you know, it's almost embarrassing. Josh is filming us today, uh, which uh, you know. But fortunately, the camera angle doesn't give away my low techness, and I appreciate that, Josh. Mm, of course. But I was gonna say, like, while I was uh, mowing the lawn, I had this thought. I said, "What if, what if Josh and I sing just a gigolo?" <laughs> <laughs> Everywhere thought, we go. Everywhere we go. And I thought, yeah, that'd be good. We could sing just a gigolo. This is a conversation I have with myself. I'll sing the first verse, and Josh will sing the second verse. That would be so funny. And so I brought it up to him, and he said, uh, <laughs> by a text, I said, hey, are you interested at all in singing just a gigolo with me? And he said, well, why don't you ask me when I get there? <laughs> <laughs> which I took as a no, which is fine. Which is fine. Um, just a gigolo, <laughs> and everywhere oh! we go. People know the part I'm playing. That's all I know, though. That's all right. That was great. If I got that much out of you, that's wonderful. Thank you. Thank you for that. You're welcome. Um, honestly, though, to get us started, I was I was hoping you could read a portion of the intro to your book, literally horrible, a halitosis novella. Would you Would you do us this honor? Oh my God, I'm blushing. Of course, <laughs> I'd love to. Oh, yes. I'm gonna pull. I'm gonna pull the mic closer. Okay. Just so we uh, so we get it every moment. Hope this isn't gonna screw up your your thing. Well, it is. Are we good? It's still standing. Hey, man, I got a face for radio, so it's all good. (laughs) All right, so this two to three. I was hoping you'd start here, okay, and then read to here. Would that would that be all right? Okay, all right. Me, 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 me. (laughs) Lips, tongue, lash, lum. I don't know. (laughs) Uh, Okay, I started writing this novella, an album, in a time when people listened to whole albums as if they were a complete statement and a capsule of gratitude. In my youth, one would buy a vinyl album and gawk at the artwork and the lyrics. Music was not a simple and easily acquired set of data streamed through a portable device. Genres like punk rock, hardcore, and metal were sought in dark clubs and smudged mailers. You were lucky to have friends with connections to such hidden gems. Music was cherished in the form of a library, a constant physical reminder of what was yours and not screens of algorithms and suggestions. I listened to my coveted albums on repeat while reading through books that my Jehovah's Witness parents told me were blasphemies to our God. Those songs became wed to the stories I read. Fleetwood Mac and Ray Bradbury joined succinctly in the short fictions of Ours for Rocket. Cinderella's album, Long Cold Winter, will to this day bring chilled flesh reminders of Edgar Allan's Poe, Edgar Allan Poe's Telltale Heart, and the thumping drumbeat underneath the floorboards within that story. Also, I must remark that in my later life, I continued this tradition while obsessively listening to Mastodon's Leviathan while tackling Herman Melville's mighty tome Moby Dick. So when I started this tiny piece that took up to 15 years of my life to write, I wanted an album to bring forth with it the chance to not only work on a piece of literature, but also perform a musical piece of art that you could go hand-in-hand 
with the written word. It was like a dreamlike fantasy. From pen to paper and prose to lyrics, it was the hardest thing I ever have done and the longest task taken on. Thank you so much, man. You're Thank welcome. you. I thought that was a great way to start. You, you mentioned in that intro, growing up as a Jehovah's Witness, exactly how strict were your parents when it came to the music you listened to? Uh, good question. So <laughs> it was actually very odd because I think my whole life my dad really wanted me to like experience literature and, and music, but also had the guilt of the, the kingdom hall of the Jehovah's Witnesses upon him. So he would introduce me to things and then he would go, you know what, shouldn't have given that to you. I'm gonna, uh, we're going to get rid of that. And he'd throw it away. <laughs> And like really? this is, yeah, this is like a constant. Like I can't tell you how many times the album uh, Guns and Roses, uh, Appetite for Destruction, like came and went because he would be like, you know, he bought it for me, and then he was like, no, you got to get rid of it. And he'd throw it away, and then I'd go out and buy it again, and he'd find it. And be like I told you not to have this, but I guess it's all right. And then one day he'd be like, you know what, that album's no good, and he'd throw it away. So it was like that, the Conan book. Like that was another. Like I bought that book. He would find it. He would throw it out. It was yeah. just like this cat and mouse game. Just for listeners who don't know, you mean Edgar Rice Burroughs? Those those novels? Uh, no. It? Oh, I'm sorry. I'm glad I corrected myself. Go ahead. Conan was uh, Robert oh, E. Howard. Oh, oh, okay. All right. Very good. Why did I think Edgar Rice? Who am I thinking of? John. He wrote the uh, the Princess of Mars. Uh, John Carter. Oh, okay. Tarzan, good, of good. course. Too. All right. Okay. Sorry, Josh. I didn't no mean to, to break your flow there. Do you remember the first band or album you heard that that really blew your mind? Was it that Was it that Guns N' Roses' Appetite for Dis Destruction, or was there something something else that really captured your imagination? I mean, I really loved music from a long from when I was young. I remember um, one of my friends in school was like in like first grade. He's like, "You really like music a lot. Like most people our age aren't into it like you are." And, uh, so I mean, I remember as a kid listening to The Grateful Dead with my dad, or like uh, you know all kinds of weird things but I would say one of the most em emotional pieces when I was a kid was actually uh, Tchaikovsky's um, uh, oh what's the one that they use the cannons in I can't think of it um, Overture anyways so I can't remember it either yeah <laughs> but um, I you know like I remember like tearing ass around the house and like jumping onto the back of the couch and having it like flip over and then just running some more and be like what so to Tchaikovsky? Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Right on, man. And my, my mom and my dad liked some classical music as well, so very cool. Very cool. Now you've been the front man for Helitosis for what now? Like fifteen years? Yeah. Is that years. about right? Yeah. It, was Helitosis your first band? No, I've been in a bunch of bands like through high school and then I was in this band called The Leftovers. They were a punk rock, you know, kinda thing when I got I moved back from uh Nantucket and uh that was a, a really fun project, and it was just like me and my high school buddies being completely belligerent, you know, getting thrown out of clubs and like having all kinds of fun. Yeah. And um, but at the end of that was when I started to say like I want to write my own music, like more, like have more control over what I can sing to and what I want to do. And that band was kind of on its way out, so I formed Helitosis. Right on. Have you always been the front man? In other words, in The Leftovers, were you were you also the front man? I was a singer, but I didn't really write the music. But with Helitosis, like, it's always been my project. Very good. Do you, do you remember the first time you performed your songs in front of an audience? Like, yeah. Different? <laughs> it was horrible. It was so bad. We had a battle of the bands. Um, and I think I signed up for it with the idea that I'm, like, forming a band. And I had a friend who said he was going to join and play bass. 
And so we had like six weeks to practice. I had three, maybe four songs written. And, um, you know, they're all songs off of this this album that we released last year. And they're not easy songs in a, in a way. Like, you know, there's a lot of like tempo changes and different things in there that are not easy to learn. And I'd never played guitar and sang at the same time. But I was confident. <laughs> and so I was like, we got six weeks, we can do this. And in like the first week, our drummer, his drum set fell apart. And then the second week when we went back to practice with him, he's like, I can't fix it. So we had to get another drummer. And so the show did go off, but it was horrible. Like the drum set that the new drummer, or it was actually my drummer from Leftovers, Ryan, his like pedal fell apart. My guitar wouldn't work, kept cutting in and out. Mm -hmm. And my bassist had issues. Like it was plagued with so many things that both of those guys were like, hey man, Good luck, but we're never playing with you again. <laughs> and I was like, oh. What a start. Yeah, it was horrible. Uh, did it get better after that? No. Oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> I think we played again. I formed, reformed the band. It took like another year or so to get things going. I had to learn to to hold a stage because playing guitar, like singing is easy. You know, like you can connect with everybody. You don't have to watch what you're doing you just, you're there, and you're, like, there to be the focal point. But when you're singing and playing guitar at the same time, it's just a lot harder. And then you have to not just sing and play guitar, but you have to project. You have to be there. And usually in a three-piece especially, you know, it's very hard to keep those three things kind of, those three parts you bring going all the time. So we played another show in, um, I think it was the LNG in New London, and I remember, like, I pumped it up. Like, flyers, the whole deal. Like, all my friends came. My, like, it was huge. And all these people showed up, and we sucked. <laughs> I think it took another, like, ten years until, like, some of those people would be like, okay, we'll come watch, but, you know, you better not be bad this <laughs> And I was like, well, we're not as bad, so... <laughs> Josh, when I first met you, and we were talking about our creative pursuits, and you graciously gave me a copy of your album and your book, and explained how the two were a pair, and the story of Literally Horrible uses lyrics from the Session, the Trenchmouth album, and works as a companion piece to the record. I was so impressed. But what didn't, what I didn't understand was that this wasn't a one-and-done type of release. The book and the album combination is what you intend to do with every subsequent Halitosis release. Is that correct? Definitely, yeah. Holy moly. I found my niche. That, that's a lot of pressure to put on yourself. It's a lot of work. Well, I don't really have a lot of other things going on. Do you intend to like write every subsequent novella or novel that, that will go with the, uh, um, with the albums? So the one that we're working on now, yes, but our drummer is actually working on... A, he wants to write a book. Um, I don't know how much he's going to have in regards to the music writing process outside of you know he's a drummer so he'll probably have some some form of drum beats but um he is on the autistic spectrum and he wants to kind of write about that and about his experience and so forth and he's an uncannily if that's a word can a cannellini yeah. bean he's an he's a cannellini bean uh uncannily good drummer his timing is miraculously spotless and so um, I think it's interesting for him to try to, to try to break out and to reach out to people. And, and it's weird that we're kind of turning into almost like a self-help band in a lot of ways, like that we're talking about social and, and emotional things in our next projects, whereas, you know, the first book and album were strictly horror. Um, but, you know, you got to keep it interesting. Yeah, for sure. For sure. you got to go where the muse uh, leads, I suppose. Mm -hmm. you, you know, we talked a lot about the music. We, we haven't necessarily talked about... 
the writing, who are some of your favorite authors? Um, Edgar Rice Burroughs, Edgar, uh, Edgar Allan Poe, uh, William S. Burroughs, I'm just trying to say names here that go together, <laughs> uh, Ray Bradbury, uh, Mark Twain, I really like a lot of the classics. I try to, you know, to read some Shakespeare, some, you know, I like to go back to that stuff because it's, you know, everything that's written nowadays is just a twist on something yeah. that's been done before. So, um, uh, yeah, Twain, I really liked Twain a lot growing up and, um, Vonnegut, I know we share that in common. Uh, it's just, that's, you know, that's like one of those questions where, hold on, dust off the stage, I'm, <laughs> you know, about 50 minutes, but... I would say those are probably some of the ones that are right in on. my top. I, I think you and I bonded a little bit initially, if I remember correctly, because you said, you said to me, do you ever read uh, Wuthering Heights? Mm. And I was like, holy crap, yes. <laughs> and I was, glad that, I'm glad that, I was glad that you said it, because I haven't read a lot of quote-unquote classic literature, you know, because you know, a lot of that didn't interest me so much. But for whatever reason, I was drawn to that book. And mm. I just loved it. And when I found out you'd read it, too, it was like, oh, man, we're going to get along. Yeah. This is great. Nice. <laughs> That's a good one. Was, uh, it, was it hard as a kid to find and read books that your parents thought maybe were, as you mentioned, blasphemies to God? Was that, was that difficult? Um, I mean, I wouldn't, I don't think so. I mean, there were probably things that would have been off, off, uh, off the table as far as, you know, like the Necronomicon or things like that, <laughs> were, you know, cause they yeah. would believe that something like that would incur demons to possess us or, you know, so no Anton LaVey. Yeah. Like that <laughs> stuff was probably not fly, but my dad and my mom were, you know, my dad especially was like, he, he really wanted me to read and he bugged me forever to, to start reading. Um, I loved for them to read to me, mm. but it was funny because he bought, um, I think it was white Fang for me. Oh, is that Jack London? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. He's like, you know, read this, read this. And he kept hounding me. And I'm like, I will, I will, oh, Dad, I will, I will. You know, I was like probably, uh, I must have been about six, seven at the time. Hmm. And so I finally got so sick of him asking me that I lied to him. And I was like, yeah, I read it. He's like, did you like it? I'm like, yeah, leave me alone. And so he left me alone. And that haunted me through my life. because felt I, guilty. I felt guilty for lying to him. Yeah. I, what I ended up, like, because he hounded me so much, I ended up reading... The first Conan book that he had given, you know, was another book they had given to me that he would take away subsequently a bunch of times. But um, years later, right before he passed away, I actually, I said, Dad, I got to come clean. I, I never read White Fang, and I still haven't to this day. And he's like, who cares? You started reading. Like, that's all that matters. <laughs> and I'm like, I didn't have to be laden with guilt. Oh, this this... Yeah, he's like, no, I'm just glad you read. <laughs> oh, that's a sweet story. <laughs> I've yet to attend a Helitosis gig, but I but I've seen footage and your shows look like they are so much fun. I I know that there are spoken word moments in the songs that are repeated in the book. Have you ever read directly from literally horrible on stage during a Helitosis performance? Um, only when we did the book and album release, which happened to be on my birthday. Um, I actually had a bunch of um spots that I read from you know I kind of like went through and made notes but I did find that the audience started to kind of lag you can only read to like an audience that's there to drink and listen to metal music for so long before yeah. they're like let me go to the bathroom and smoke a joint <laughs> so yeah, I found that it, that it was waning but yeah I mean I, even that old like when I was in that band the leftovers I would crack out some like 
um, Hunter S. Thompson. Like you would, we'd end a show, and I'd be like, "Stick around if you want me to read to you." And like, <laughs> have like people sit down in Indian style in front of the stage, and I'd read like a couple pages to them or something. Oh, that's really cool. Yeah, yeah. you gotta you gotta make things interesting. Like that's what la- I think is lacking from a lot of music and a lot of like shows and stuff. Is people tend to just go like, "We're gonna go out there, we're gonna play our music, we're gonna rock," and that's great. But you have to make things interesting for people because there's so much garbage. Yeah, you gotta you gotta shine off, you know, shine the diamond and let it let it really out. There. Yeah, there's nothing wrong with doing a little bit of this, a little bit of that, mm-hmm. shake it up a bit. I I once saw the Dead Milkmen, and their lead singer read from like Suzanne Summer's uh, autobiography. <laughs> That's it was awesome. hilarious. That's great because uh, they had that song Punk Rock Girl, and mm. then uh, they mentioned uh, they mentioned Mojo Nixon. And they had mentioned somebody else in that song, but for whatever reason, I think in the middle of that song, they did like a breakdown and he read uh, from Suzanne Summers' autobiography, which was hilarious. <laughs> you, you work a full-time regular job, Josh. You've got the band, you've got your writing. Is, is it hard to, to make time for your passions alongside your responsibilities? Not if you are intent on being a slacker as much as possible. I think like, <laughs> you know, that's why it took 15 years to finish the first one. No, but I, I do... I try to hold myself to schedules, but I learned a long time ago that when you are, for me, when I'm strict about how I write or what my goals are for a certain timeline, when you don't meet them, all they do is demotivate you. Like, I'm not under contract. Like, I told the band, like, you're probably not going to see me for a while because I'm going to be working on this aspect of things. You know, we'll meet up, we'll do these things, but... They know that there's no hard date right now of when this thing's going to be finished. Mm. Um, they do their parts, and then, you know, we get together, we do shows whenever we can. But I definitely believe for what my process is, I have to be very loose about that. You know, so I get done what I can get done, and there's some days that I'm like, it's nice out, I'm going to enjoy the day instead of worrying about getting another chapter done. Because if I don't, I'll probably end up sitting there staring out the window, not getting anything done, and then really beat myself up about it. Mm. So, for me, that works. Good for you for finding that balance. That's excellent. Josh, your writing is what, what I would describe as very descriptive and densely worded. And uh, which I think it makes for a more engrossing reading experience. And I can absolutely understand why literally horrible took you such a long time to to write and and, and eventually release. This is a horror story. Uh, There are some very dark themes and characters. Was it was it hard for you to get into the headspace of these dark individuals and, 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 you know, graphically violent themes? Yeah. Yeah. There's um. And there were some parts that were cathartic to write, you know, when I was uh, going through a divorce, like, unfortunately, like, one of the main, the first murder scenes was kind of a way to get that anger out, Um, but there's other things in that, especially uh, Shane, who's a character in it for a short period of time, I wrestled with that, and it, it bothered me to write that, and it, you know, there, there were parts that made me kind of question, like, or am I as a person? But the whole book was actually like that in my experience of writing. It was me questioning who am I. And not just like a, you know, am I a writer or am I just like a charlatan? You know, it was it had to do with these deep demons inside myself that thought I'm a bad person. And after writing and looking at what a person like that does, I realized I'm not a bad person. 
and that I'm, you know, a fairly good person that just likes dark subject matter to exercise the demons. Right on. That's a great answer, man. It's a great question. Thanks, buddy. Josh, your band is called Helitosis. The tagline being the most distasteful band in the world. Uh, on on this podcast, I've said that I I think it helps a metal band to have a sense of humor mm. about themselves, uh, which I think you do. And uh, that being said, the novella is is not humorless. I mean, is is not is not humorous rather. Do you, do you think you have a comedy novel or, or novella in you at all? Definitely, there's one I have planned in the future. I'm hoping to get to that. Um, again, dark subject matter, um, but I plan on it being. Hopefully, like the movie Waiting, but it will take place in a much darker fashion. Okay. Um, I'm 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 somewhat familiar. If I remember correctly, that had that did it have Dane Cook in it. Waiting. Dane Cook was in it. Yeah, Ryan Reynolds. Okay, and also the man boyish looking fellow was in it, and I can't think of his name right uh, now. Do you uh, know what I'm talking about? Yeah. Uh, is it Justin? Oh, no, there was another no. one. Forget it. I must be thinking of somebody else, but I remember it vaguely. And yeah. I never saw it. It's a, it's a movie that, like, if you've worked in the restaurant industry, you totally, you're like, oh, yeah, oh, yeah, people spitting food, and you know, like, all these things. But it's actually very hilarious. And, um, you know, it, it kind of speaks of camaraderie and familyship within these, these you know, establishments where you work. You spend nice. all your life, so. So you're working on the next album and book right now, is that yeah. correct? Yes. Is there is there anything that you can uh, you can tell us about it? You can give us any kind of uh, teaser on on what the themes are of this this one? Yeah, trigger warning. If you've ever um, dealt with you know the loss of of a child, like this is one of the things that it deals with, and about. Um, Men handling and processing grief and how we tend to not do that well. Um, and I think also art therapy and, and how working through things through the use of expression is a very helpful uh, topic. Um, so I did, I lost a child, he was stillborn. And I never wanted children, so the whole process of getting ready to have a child and then having it not work out changed me in so many different ways different facets and different ways that um you know I want to write a book for him since he didn't get to live I want something to live on for him and I want to also try to reach out to other you know especially men and and be like you know what is your experience a you know tell me if you if you can like how you handled it and to also you know let them know that even though they weren't the the person that grew the child inside of them that they're emotions and experience count just as much and that they should um you know seek counseling or seek other people or express it in some way right on man it's heavy stuff yeah but great stuff thank you josh so much for talking with me i'm folks i'm going to put links to uh, josh's creative pursuits in the description of this episode and i want you to check it out i think uh, i think uh, josh and what he's doing is really incredible and uh especially again simultaneously a book with a with an album companion and doing that again and again that's that's ambitious <laughs> but uh but very very cool josh thank you so much for talking with me this has been so much fun thanks for having me andy thank you really buddy. great i appreciate it and uh and with that i'm gonna hand things over now to our friend rachel from des moines and she is going to give you the chart chat so take it away rachel rachel 
Thanks, Andy. Hello, and welcome back to Rachel's Chart Chat for another week. Thanks to everyone who listened last week and everyone who's been catching up on People Are the Enemy Fs. For today, I wanted to catch up on the last few weeks of chart action. From 1977, there's a song at number 93 called What You Gonna Do by Pablo Cruz. That would make it to number six. Uh, that was the group's debut single, and it ended up being the tie for peak position that they reached. Uh, the other song that equaled num- that spot was Love Will Find a Way from 78. I can really hear the R&B influence in this one, and call me crazy, but I think this could have been a good one for Tavares to cover. Pablo Cruz had their final Hot 100 appearance in October of 81, so they were quite the phenomenon of the late 70s. At number 75 is a song called Sub Rosa Subway slash Calling Occupants by the group Klaatu. That would make it to number 62. Klaatu is a Canadian prog band. They are named for a character in The Day the Earth Stood Still. Perhaps you've heard the phrase Klaatu Barada Niktu. They had a few singles early in 70s in Canada, but they didn't really break in the United States until a rumor started going around that Klaatu was really the Beatles under a different name. Steve Smith wrote an article for the Providence, Rhode Island Journal. Today you might say he was just asking questions, and then there was also a DJ in Connecticut that kind of got this theory going. Capitol Records was their U.S. label, and they were more than happy to lean into the rumor in a coy way because it boosted sales. Klaatu seemed like a very serious band. They did not, they, they had this idea of, we're going to let the music speak for itself. They didn't really do a lot of uh, publicity and press. So that kind of that secrecy, I think, also helped feed this rumor. This album that the song was on is called 347 EST, which is also a reference to The Day the Earth Stood Still. The album was released in August of 76, and then the article was written on February 13th of 1977, and this double-sided single of Sodorosa Subway and Calling Occupants hit the Hot 100 on April 2nd of 77. Actually, this one I'm really just sharing more for the story, because I like it. It's fine. It's just not one of my favorites, personally, but to be fair, I don't know a lot about these guys. I haven't really dug into them, although I do really like the part where it goes, We Are Your Friends. I learned that Terry Brown, who was a big Rush producer, also produced these guys, and he sang backup vocals on Calling Occupants. The rumor was disproven on April 19th of 77 by Dwight Douglas, who was a program director at WWDC in our nation's capital. And then the song, the final week on the chart was May 7th of 77. Uh, Klaatu released four more albums before splitting up in the early 80s, but this was their only U.S. Hot 100 appearance. Um, I first heard about them and this uh, Beatle rumor in the book I Want to Be Sedated by Phil DeLillo and Scott Woods. I think I've referred to this before. This book is all about pop music in the 70s. It's really funny, but it's also like a lot of the jokes are just lies. So if you don't know the actual you know, st- music facts, it's easy to get misled. But uh, this passage says, The most peculiar Beatles sound alike was Klaatu, a group of mysterious travelers who charted one two-sided single in 1977, Sub Subway, calling occupants, and then promptly returned to whence they came, which, to the surprise of no one except amazing Kreskin fans, turned out to be a dairy farm in northern Ontario. Rumors abounded that Klaatu was the Beatles themselves anonymously reunited, which was obviously impossible seeing as John, Paul, George, and Ringo were already anonymously collaborating under the name Leo Sayer. You can also visit Klaatu.org, which has many a page about this Beatle rumor and disproves basically every theory because it's ridiculous. Finally, from 1977, I wanted to mention that at number 39, we have uh, uh, Shalimar has Uptown Festival 
uh, part one. It did make it to number 25. It was a number 10 hit on the R&B chart and number two on the dance. This song is a medley of 10 famous Motown classics set over a disco beat. So a pretty obvious precursor of Stars on 45 and the medley craze to come. It was sung by session musicians, but later a proper Shalimar group was formed. The song was on the Soul Train label. So last week I talked about a couple hits from 84, but I wanted to add on. Uh, first of all, I want to know if the Daz Band and Midnight Star were best friends or bitter rivals. I can honestly see no other option for the two funk groups who are at 86 and 84 respectively on April 14th of 1984 with joystick and no parking on the dance floor. Um, we got one for the Carl Tart fans at number 65, She's Strange by Cameo. Uh, that made it to number 47. This was Cameo's first R&B number one and their first appearance on the pop chart. And they had been bubbling under four times previously and had many, many R&B singles for up to this point. Their highest charting song on the pop charts is Word Up, of course, at number six. But I saw that they got a featuring credit on Mariah Carey's number two hit Lover Boy from the Glitter soundtrack in 2001. And then at number 63, we have Laura Branigan with her song Self Control. That would make it to number four. Um, this was the first single off of the album of the same name, which was her third. And I wanted to share it because I think it really shows her range. She can do ballads or more up-tempo dance songs. And this song was co-written by Giancarlo Brigazzi, who also wrote Gloria. And both of those songs were recorded first by male Italian singers. And both were featured in American Crime Story Versace. And they are her two biggest hits. So moving on to uh, a chart from April 22nd of 1972. Uh, so speaking of Italian male singers, at number 68 is a song called Son of My Father by Giorgio, which is Giorgio Moroder, but that's how the song was credited, just to his first name. And that would make it to number 46. Uh, so before he became known as a producer, Giorgio Moroder was also a singer and songwriter. Giorgio Moroder wrote the song wrote Song of My Father and it became a number one UK hit for the group Chicory Tip and it only reached number 91 in the US. But Wikipedia says that British football uh, or soccer fans on the terraces of the stadium sing team chants to the song's tune. I imagine it's like if American football fans started singing words to Seven Nation Army. Maybe they already do. A cool fact I learned about this song is that it was the first UK number one single that prominently featured a synthesizer and it was a Moog synthesizer and Wikipedia says it was programmed by Chris Thomas. At number 59 is a song called Lay Away by the Isley Brothers that would make it to number 54 and uh, number six on the R&B chart. This is the first single off the group's 10th album and it caught my ear from the funky beat and also it reminded me of the Honeycomb song Want Ads, just thematically. And then the Wikipedia page says that Layaway took that song's riff, quote, especially in the bridges. And number 31 uh, is a song called Hot Rod Lincoln by Commander Cody and his Lost Planet Airmen. 
that would make it to number nine. And this is a little bit of a vanity pick. I actually remember this one from being a kid and hearing it on KIOA with my mom and brother. And since that was, you know, an oldie station, they were playing anything from, you know, the mid-50s to the very early 70s. So I assumed it was a much older song. And so in reading the Wikipedia page, I came to learn that the song was originally done by Charlie Ryan, uh, in released in 55 and then again in 59 by him. And uh, then again in 1960, uh, it was a cover by John. Johnny Bond, and then and here in 72 we have Commander Cody. All three of those hit the top 40. I don't know which of Charlie Ryan's, I couldn't figure that out. Uh, but Commander Cody's was at number 9, the best performing. And then the song was also sung by Jim Varney for the Beverly Hill Hillbillies soundtrack in 1993 when he played Jed Clampett. And my brother had that on CD. Uh, finally, here's a few from April 20th of 1987, just a couple for you. At number 54 is a song called Boom Boom, in parentheses, Let's Go Back to My Room, by Paul Lukakis. That would make it to number 43. Uh, it was a number six hit on the dance charts, and it did hit number one in Australia. Uh, Wikipedia describes him as a singer and model. And this 1987 chart, as you can imagine, has a bunch of freestyle songs on it, you know, from groups like the Covergirls and Fa Company B. Uh, but Boom Boom definitely has a distinct sound from those. You can hear the inf European influence from the producers. And the genre is listed as high energy, with, and that's with the letters NRG. Uh, Paul Lukakis, it, it looks like he went through some tough times, and he is HIV positive, but he is still with us, and he has released music as recently as 2017. And finally, uh, number 20 is Can't You Say, in parentheses, You Believe in Me slash Still in Love by Boston. And number 20 was the peak for that. This is the third single from Boston's third album, appropriately called Third Stage. And I was inspired to include this after listening to Jason Gore's Hawk Rock Talk app about Boston, about the debut album specifically. Uh, but he and his co-host Jeff didn't seem to think much of the subsequent albums. So I had to put in a plug for Third Stage and then, you know, using this song specifically. Um, but I love the whole album. It's a great one for when you're going through it. Uh, can't you say this one was Boston's final top 40 appearance? Although in 1994, they did have a song called I Need Your Love, reach number 51. Well, that's all from me this week. Thanks so much for listening. Back to you, Andy. Thank you, Rachel. Awesome stuff, as always. This has been episode 279 of the People Are the Enemy podcast. Our theme song is Walrus Love by Nokia Ocean. You can find that song and more at pizzapuppies.bandcamp.com. My name is Andy Mascola. You can purchase my novels via Amazon and other online book retailers in both paperback and ebook formats for as little as $1.99. Thank you for listening. Thank you for subscribing. Thank you, Rachel from Des Moines. Thank you, Josh Tate. We love you. Peace. <laughs>